And so let me just give a quick recap to what we've covered so far. So a couple weeks ago, we looked at step one in conflict resolution, and we said, according to Jesus, the beginning of healthy conflict resolution, step one begins right here, and that is we have to first be willing to humble ourselves. You have to humble yourself. And what we said on this was we basically said, Jesus points out to us that the foundation of healthy conflict resolution is humility. Uh, You are not going to get anywhere in healthy conflict resolution without humility being present. And so what we said is, we kind of said this, we said the natural tendency, and I think this is true for all of us, the natural tendency when we face conflict with another person is oftentimes we we naturally want to point the finger out, right? And so we want to point out the flaws and the hurts and the offenses of the other person. We want to point out the sins and how they hurt us, and we want to point those things out. But what Jesus says is he says, you know, there's actually a different way that he invites those who follow him uh, to enact, and that is that we are to humble ourselves, and that before we point the finger outward at another person, we need to first look in the mirror. And we need to be willing to be bold enough and courageous enough and humble enough to ask the question, uh, what unmet desire inside of me is actually contributing to the conflict that I'm facing? And so we said, we gotta start there. You gotta humble yourself. And so that was step one. Then last week, we actually spent the whole time talking about step two. And if you were here, you might remember, we said step two is to remove logs, to remove logs, which I know if you weren't here, that might sound really weird to you. Uh, But what we meant by that is, is that it's not enough to simply just recognize that I am playing a part in this conflict I must be willing to own my my part and I must be willing to go to great lengths to make that right. Uh, The wrongs that I haven't acted against another person, I need to remove the log from my own eye. It's kind of what we talked about a little bit last week. We said, man, even if in the conflict you're in, the other other party is 98% responsible for the hurt and the harm and the conflict that you're facing, even if you're only 2% responsible for what's happening, we said you have to take 100% ownership of that 2%. And and we have to be willing to go to even dramatic lakes sometimes uh, to make it right, to make it right. And so that was last week. And by the way, if you missed these, these first two steps, I would really encourage you to go back and listen to those. I think it would be very much to your advantage and it, it kind of lays a strong foundation uh, for especially step three as we're gonna get in that today. So step three is what we're gonna be looking at today. And I actually wanna start by picking it up in verse 15. So if you glance down at your Bible with me, let's look at what Jesus says, Matthew 18, verse 15. So he's picking up the conversation. This whole chapter is about conflict resolution. And here's what Jesus says in verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, now by the way, real quick, some of you might have different translations. It might say, if your brother or sister sins against you, Or maybe your translation says, if someone offends you, there's a couple different ways to translate it, but you got the idea. If your brother or sister sins or sins against you, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, then you have won them over. All right, so so here Jesus says, again, the whole, it's all about conflict. He says, if someone sins or someone sins against you or if someone offends you or hurts you or harms you, He says, you need to go to that person, just between the two of you, and you need to point out the fault. You need to point out the sin. You need to point out the offense. Now, here's the thing. I think maybe, if, and especially this might be true if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, I know what some of you might be thinking right now. Some of you might be thinking, all right, finally, right? Now we get to talk about them. 
and what they've done and how they've hurt me. And we're like, okay, now we're getting somewhere. And the reason I say that is because you remember the last couple of weeks, it's been all about looking in here, right? It's been all about looking in the mirror. And so it's humble yourself and it's own your peace. In fact, I think it's so funny. One of the, uh, one of the key pieces of feedback I've gotten in this series, so I've had a number of comments throughout this series, uh, comments and people have, have uh, given me some feedback and most of it's been really positive and really good. But one of, the, one of the common themes I've noticed is I've had a number of people come up to me and say something to this effect. They've said, man, this has been a great series. You know, I really love it so far, the humble yourself and like, you know, gotta remove the log. Like, this is all really good but this is what I've noticed. A lot of people said, but when are we gonna talk about them, right? When are we gonna talk about what they did and how they hurt me? That's, that's a real thing, right? We gotta get there. And, and my response has been, just be patient, all right? We're gonna get there because Jesus is obviously gonna get there. And so some of you are like, okay, now we're gonna talk about them, right? That's what we're gonna do this morning. We're gonna talk about what they did to me and what am I supposed to do about the offense and the hurt? That's what we're gonna do this morning, right? And the answer is actually um, no, that's not what we're gonna do this morning. And uh, in fact, that's what we're gonna do next week, all right? And so next week, we're actually gonna spend pretty much our whole time looking at this verse and, and all the considerations of what does this look like? How does this conversation look? When does this conversation happen? And what context does this happen? What kind of considerations, like um, when are you supposed to just overlook an offense and when do you need to go actually have a conversation? All that stuff we're gonna talk about next week, okay? But you might be thinking, well then why are you showing me this today? Like are you just, are you just teasing me, right? Is that what's happening? And that's not what's happening. The reason I wanted to show you this verse today is because Jesus says this, but right before he says this, he says something else that is key to understanding what he means here. If you guys were here a few weeks ago, you might remember I said, there is a very, very, very real danger, and, and I think all of us know this. There is a very real danger to grabbing a verse and yanking it out of context, right? And then applying it to whatever situation you're facing that day. And the danger, and I think all of us understand this, the danger is when you take something out of context, right, you are very susceptible to misunderstanding that verse, to misapplying that verse, and quite honestly, to abusing it, to abusing it. And unfortunately, this verse right here has been widely misunderstood, and it has been very abused. Now, there's actually been a lot of damage because people have ripped this thing out of context and have applied it to situations too quickly without understanding the heart of what is behind it. Let's see if I can put it this way. So in Matthew 18, uh, I, what I mentioned to you is I said, Matthew 18, the whole teaching Jesus gives is about conflict resolution, right? Conflict is the context of Matthew 18. All, everything he says in Matthew 18 is a response to an argument that his disciples were having, right? And if I could just lay out for you kind of the way that Matthew 18 is, is the progression of Matthew 18, you probably notice that Jesus basically says conflict resolution, healthy conflict resolution starts here. I have to humble myself. I have to look in the mirror. I have to own my part. Jesus says it starts here. And then eventually, eventually, he's gonna get to this. He's gonna say, now what do you do about them? What do you do about their hurt and how they offended you? What do you do about the crime that they committed against? What do you do about them? But what I want you to see is that what Jesus is gonna do before we, 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 we move the finger from here to here, Jesus is actually gonna show us from verse 10 to verse 14, there is something very important you need to do in your heart before this conversation takes place. Before you go and you point out 
the, the offense and the sin and the hurt and the harm that another person has caused you, before you go and you deal with that thing that they did to you, Jesus is gonna say in the verses prior to this, there is something very important that you need to do in your heart. There is some work you gotta do here before you get to this verse. And that's what I wanna show you today. And that's what step three is all about. So let me just show you. We're actually gonna start in verse 10. And so last week we ended in verse nine. We're gonna pick it right up where we left off. Okay, so Jesus is gonna be continuing in this conversation about conflict resolution. Here's what he says in verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, Jesus says. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. All right, let's just go ahead and pause there and kind of reboot a little bit. And like I said, uh, we looked so far at verses one to nine, and so this is a continuation of Jesus' teaching. But notice what he says. He says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, is what he says. Now, real quick, maybe you can kind of help me out, especially if you've been here over the last couple of weeks. When Jesus says little ones, and if you were kind of paying attention over the last couple of weeks, who is he referring to when he says little ones? Just tell me, shout it out. Who's he talking about? Who is it? Yeah, his disciples, right? He's talking about his disciples. He's talking about those who follow Jesus. And we've actually talked about that over the last couple of weeks, that this is a metaphor that Jesus uses all throughout Matthew 18, that those who follow Jesus are to humble themselves like little children. And so he's kind of continuing with that metaphor when he says little ones. Now, here's why that's important. I just wanna reiterate this. What we said is this. We said that everything that Jesus says about conflict resolution in Matthew 18 is directly um, directed towards those who follow Jesus, right? And so what we said is this. We said that every step of conflict resolution that Jesus is gonna lead us through is specifically directed towards those of us who follow Christ, to disciples. And listen, I understand that not everyone in this room today maybe is a follower of Jesus. Some of you maybe are not Christians. Maybe you're still investigating the whole Jesus thing. You're still trying to figure that out. And I think it's important just to let you know that if you're not a follower of Jesus, that what Jesus says about conflict resolution, I think has incredible wisdom for anybody, but it is specifically directed towards those who follow Jesus. So for those of us who follow Christ, this is for us specifically, all right? But I want you to notice what he says here. He says, see to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. Don't despise. Now, that's kind of an interesting word there. Let me just talk about that for a second. So some of you might have some different translations, and instead of the word despise, it might say, don't look down on one of these little ones. Uh, the word despise literally means to show contempt for. It means to devalue. It means to belittle or to dehumanize another person. That's what it means. So what's Jesus saying here? Here's what he says. He says, you need to be very careful, be very careful not to dehumanize, not to devalue, not to belittle or look down on another person. That's what he says. Now, why? Why? Well, notice what he says next. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Now, what in the world is that all about, right? What, what do angels have to do with conflict resolution? Like, what's going on here? Well, let, let me just say on this, I don't wanna get too in the weeds on this one, but this verse right here has actually been used as a proof text uh, to explain kind of the, the teaching of guardian angels. You guys are probably all familiar with that, right? The teaching of a guardian angel is essentially that every single one of us has an angel that's been assigned to us to watch after us, to care for us, to protect us, right? To keep us from doing anything destructive or whatever it might be, that there's an angel that's assigned. So that's what the teach, kind of like, a, what was that movie? Um, 
It's a wonderful life, right? The whole guardian angel concept. Now, here's the thing. I'm not real sure about all that. The Bible's not super clear how all that works, right? But this verse has been used as a support for that. But here's the point. I don't want you to miss the point. Here's the point that he's making, all right? Jesus is basically saying, be careful that you don't look down, despise, dehumanize, devalue another person. Why? Because God cares for them very, very, very much. God goes to great lengths to provide for them, to protect them, to care for their needs, right? God loves, and and by the way, I think that this is true, not just, of course, for those who follow Jesus. I think this is true for every human being. The Bible's really clear that every person, no matter how much they may have hurt you or offended you, no matter how great or severe the crime they've committed, every person has dignity because they're created in the image of God. Every single person who has ever walked this planet has dignity because they are created in God's image. And so what Jesus is saying here is he says, be careful not to devalue or look down on another person. Why? Because they matter a lot to God. God loves them. That person you're in conflict with, that person who has hurt you, right? They have value and they are loved by God. God cares for them. That ex-spouse, that that, that friend that did that terrible thing to you, it, God cares for that person very much. And I think that's why, by the way, Jesus actually says this. He says, see that you do not despise them. Some of you have some translations that might say, take heed that you don't despise them. Here's what it literally means. Jesus is actually saying, beware. Beware. Be careful. Be careful that you don't devalue, dehumanize that you don't treat someone in such a way that you rob them of the dignity that they deserve as a person who is an image bearer of God. They were made in the image of God. What is he saying? I, I, I hope you're picking up on this. Remember, the whole context is conflict. And so what's Jesus pointing out? Here's what he's saying. Jesus is pointing out that there is a very real temptation in every single one of us. And this is true of all of us in this room. There is a temptation inside of all of us that when someone hurts us, or when someone offends us, or someone sins against us, or someone does something that really, really, really causes us pain, there's a temptation in our heart to belittle that person, to devalue that person, to dehumanize that person, and to treat them in such a way that we rob them of the dignity that they deserve as a person who is loved and cared for by God. And listen, this temptation, I think, by the way, is not only universally true, I think it's true across all of humanity that there is a temptation when someone hurts me to devalue them. But I can just say, and this, is my, this might just be my opinion, but I honestly believe that the culture that we find ourselves in today, the society, that kind of the cultural moment that we find ourselves in today, that that temptation to devalue and dehumanize another person is actually, uh, has actually been intensified And here's what I mean by that. There's actually been sociological studies on this, and this probably doesn't surprise any of you, that since the advent of technology and since the rise of social media, there has been a noticeable turn in the intensity and in the inclination to dehumanize and devalue others. In fact, I'll just give you a a couple examples. I think all of us can understand this, but if you think of like cyberbullying, if you think about even just the comments that are posted on your, like if you just go to your news feed and look at any tragic story that happened this past week and you read the comments, I mean the vile and the pro- dehumanizing 
and the funeral hasn't even happened yet. And, there, and there's just a, and sociologists point out that there has been a noticeable turn, that there is a greater intensity and there's a greater inclination for us to devalue and to dehumanize. In fact, it was really interesting. I was um, reading this article this past week by a sports commentator, of all people, a sports commentator. He's been in the industry for a long time and he was talking about, he said that, that he has noticed that since the rise of uh, technology and the advent of social media, he, has said, he said that he has noticed a marked turn in the nature of comments that he gets. So he says, it used, to be, it used to be that I would get paid to write an article you know, about some kind of sports thing, about who I think the starting lineup should be or you know, what, what, what I think the condition of a team was. And he says, it used to be that if people disagreed with me, they would write me a comment and they would say, I disagree with you. I disagree. I don't think that's the best starting lineup. I think that they should do it this way or whatever. And he said, but ever since social media, especially since social media began to kind of permeate the scene, he says, now the comments are not so much about disagreement. He says, they borderline death threats. So he'll be like, I think this should be the starting lineup. And people will be like, I hate you. I wish you were dead. Go kill yourself over sports. And so this guy, I thought it was interesting. This guy actually got on the phone and called the people that were behind some of these comments. And what he said he found was so surprising. He said that behind so many of those comments were some of the most normal, unsuspecting people and he said when he actually questioned them and asked them about the comments, he said one of the most common responses he got was people said, wow, you know what, I didn't actually stop to think that there was a human behind that article. It never really even occurred to me that how that might make you feel. And there is, and again, there is just, in the culture that we live in, there is an increasing uh, temptation, I believe, to devalue and dehumanize someone when they offend us, when they hurt us, when they disagree with us, right? Probably um, the most, one of the most famous uh, occurrences where this is happening, this is kind of, some of you might remember this, this has become kind of like the premier example of be careful what you post on social media. But you guys remember there was this story, it was a few years ago, about this girl who was uh, getting on a plane to fly to Africa. You guys remember this? And so she was, it, was, it happened here in the United States. She got on a plane to fly to Africa and right before she got on the plane, right before she boarded, she tweeted out on her Twitter account. She said, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, I'm white. And so she tweeted this thing out and I mean, just a terrible thing to say. Right? Racist and hurtful and inconsiderate and terrible, right? Now, this doesn't justify what she wrote, but later she was interviewed about that statement and she said, she said, well, first off, she said, I did not expect that that was going to go to the entire globe. So I thought that it was just going to go to my friends, to my peer group. And she said, she actually said that she was actually trying to be sarcastic. She was actually trying to poke fun at that aspect of white privilege. But, you know, sarcasm isn't heard through a tweet. And, and, that doesn't, and regardless, that doesn't justify the ugliness of what she said, right? A terrible thing to say. But what happened next is what I find so fascinating. And this is what sociologists have studied since this event has taken place. So after she tweeted this, she boarded the plane. And she, for half a day, she's flying across the world. And there's no Wi-Fi. So she has no idea that what's happening in the world below is this thing is getting tweeted and retweeted and retweeted and shared and, the, and it caught the globe's attention. And so now thousands of people are commenting 
on this tweet. And you can imagine what those comments are. It doesn't take much imagination. The profanity and the vulgarity and the she needs to die and she's a terrible person. And what sociologists said was so interesting, this is what they've been studying, was the glee that so many people took to watch her destroyed. In fact, there was this whole thing where people waited up until she landed. And when she landed, there was, the press was waiting. They were already there waiting for her when she got off the plane. And everyone looked eagerly to watch her go down. Stayed up all night just to watch her get off that plane. You see, what's really interesting is when you look at some of the comments that were written in response to her comment, man, you, you notice none of the comments were like constructive. Right? No one was like, wow, that is deeply offensive. There seriously needs to be a dialogue about the, the power and effect of words that are hurtful like that. And no one said anything like that. It was all, she should die, all the worst vulgarity. And you can imagine, one person tweeted back in response, and I'm not making this up, this is a direct quote. One guy responded to her, he said, I hope you get gang raped and get AIDS so you know what it's like. And and you see, you see that that guy that made that comment, he never got reprimanded for that. No one blew the whistle on him and said, you should never, like, as if to say, if someone offends you or hurts you or someone does something that you disagree with, that that is justifiable reason for you to speak with that level of ugliness to another person, to dehumanize them, to de- I mean, for crying out loud, I hope you get raped. I mean, can we all agree that that's inappropriate? Like, more inappropriate maybe even than what was originally posted? And you see, all I'm saying is there is a tendency and it's becoming exaggerated even more in our culture today, that, that when someone disagrees with us or, doesn't, or, or hurts us or offends us, that that is justifiable cause for us to devalue that person, to dehumanize that person, to rob them of the dignity that they deserve as a person who is loved by God. It is a real temptation. And while that might seem like an extreme situation, that same temptation lives inside of every single one of us. When someone hurts us, when someone offends us, uh, that it, we need to be very, and that's what Jesus says, you need to be very careful. For those of us who follow Christ, Jesus would look and he would say, when someone hurts you, when someone offends you, when someone does something that, that really, you need to be so careful, be so careful that in that you don't devalue that person who I love so much, that you don't treat that person with a, lot, with a lack of dignity which they deserve. By the way, this whole idea that Jesus gives us where he says, you know, before you point out the sin of another person or before you address the hurt and the harm they've caused you, you have to be careful. You need to, you know, warning, be cautious. That is a very consistent theme throughout the New Testament. In fact, I could actually give you a handful of verses that say that very same thing. But let me just give you one to kind of, uh, kind of just further clarify what Jesus is saying. I think in Galatians chapter six, let me just show you this real quick. The apostle Paul says something that's right in line with what Jesus says. So look what he says. He says, brothers and sisters. And by the way, I think that's so important. Brothers and sisters. In other words, how do we treat each other? We should treat each other with so much dignity and love that we recognize that we are all loved by the Father. Deeply loved by the Father. So brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Now look at this. But watch yourself. You be so careful. You be so careful or you may also be tempted. Now, by the way, the heart of what 
is said here in Galatians, I think really reflects the heart of what Jesus says in the passage we just looked at. But I think in understanding that, you also have to understand a very important word here, and that's this word right here, caught. So, so Paul says, if someone is caught in a sin, if someone is caught in a sin, you see, unfortunately, I think in our, kind of in our modern setting, when we hear the word caught, we tend to think of like, aha, caught you, right? Like, like a police officer catches someone in the act of a crime, like, I caught you red-handed. Like, if anyone's caught in a sin, <laughs> I caught you, right? But, but you gotta understand, that's actually not the way the New Testament means this word at all. The word caught here is actually literally translated to be caught in a trap. So it's not like, aha, I caught you. It's like, oh no, oh no, you got caught in a trap. My brother, my sister, this person I love is caught. And so he says, so then you who live by the Spirit should gently, Seek to restore that person to a right relationship with God and to a right relationship with yourself. You see, you see the picture? You see the picture he's saying? Here, here's the picture. Imagine this. Imagine you and someone you really care about, someone you really love, are walking down a road together and they step into quicksand and they're starting to sink and they're caught. They're caught. You're not like, aha, I caught you, you idiot. You know, huh. that's not what you do. What do you do? You say, oh no, oh no, you're caught. And so let me help you. Let me gently help you. But I gotta watch myself. I don't wanna fall in that same trap too. I need to be very, very cautious. Listen, we said this uh, last week, but I think, I think it's worth repeating. I think Jesus is really clear on this, that the number one enemy in conflict is not the other person. It's not. The number one enemy in conflict is sin. It's sin in you and it's sin in me. And you see the picture is together, together, we're gonna fight this. We're gonna fight so that we can have a restored relationship with each other, a restored relationship with God. See, I think sometimes in conflict, we tend to think that it's like one person is healthy and the other person is unhealthy. Oh, you know what their problem is? They're just unhealthy. I'm healthy, they're unhealthy. The Bible's really clear. That's never the issue. It's never that one party is healthy and the other party is unhealthy. It's that both parties are unholy. We all need God's grace and we need to help each other in these situations. And, and, and so just to clarify what he's saying here, if that's not clear enough, Jesus is actually gonna go on in Matthew 18 and he's actually gonna give us a parable, kind of a little story, right? I love it when he does this. This is always helpful. But watch what Jesus says next, verse 12. He looks at his disciples, he says, what do you think? What do you guys think? So he asks a question of them. What do you guys think? He says, if a man owns 100 sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills to go and look for that one who wandered off? So Jesus gives a little parable here. And he kind of envisions a shepherd, which of course, you know, back in this time, that was a very common line of work. So everyone was familiar with a shepherd. So Jesus says, what do you guys think? If there's a guy who owns 100 sheep, one of them wanders off, he says, he's gonna leave the 99. He's gonna go after the one, right? Which, by the way, I think there is something that gets a little lost in translation here. I think for us as modern readers, when we, when we read that, we think, boy, that seems really irresponsible, like, why would you abandon the 99 to go after the one? That seems really stupid. But you gotta understand that Jesus' hearers would not have heard it that way. Everyone knew that if you were a shepherd, that you worked with other shepherds. And so it's not so much that he's abandoning the 99 as it is that he's, he cares so much about finding the one. But then notice what Jesus says next. And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than the 99 that did not wander off. Now this to me, and this, to me, this might just be me, so... Don't take this as scripture. But this to me is actually a little surprising. And what surprises me specifically is that the Bible says that this guy who goes and finds a sheep is happy 
When he finds that sheep, man, he is so happy about it. He's so happy. He has so much joy about finding it. And to me, and I don't know, like again, I've never been a shepherd before, but to me, that's surprising because I'm just, I'm just trying to envision, all right, if I was a shepherd, and again, this might just be me, if I was a shepherd and I had one sheep that wandered off, I don't think I'd be real happy about going and finding him, right? I think for me, I'd be frustrated, I'd be inconvenienced, right? I'd be like, that dumb sheep, this stupid sheep wandered off, and the whole time I'd be like, if I find him, man, we're having lamb chops tonight, like that's what <laughs> that might just be me, right? But notice what he says. He says when he finds it, man, he is so happy. In fact, that actually doesn't go far enough. Luke 15, which is a, a parallel story that Jesus tells, actually goes further and says not only is this shepherd happy, he actually has a party. He goes back and he has a party for the sheep. He's like, I found my lost sheep. Let's have a party. To which everyone would have been like, that's kind of weird. No one does that, right? What's the point that he's making? Here's the point that he's making. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Or some of your translations say, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones are lost. In other words, what he's saying is, listen, your Father in heaven doesn't want that person to be lost. Your Father in heaven doesn't want you to live in an estranged place with that person. You're in conflict. God takes great joy and happiness, happiness, when there's a restoration back to a right relationship with God and back to a right relationship with others. That's what makes God happy. Now, now here's what I want you to notice. Now, understanding what Jesus just said, I want you to reread verse 15. And you're gonna see it in a different light. Look what he says now. If your brother or sister sins, dearly loved by God, your brother, your sister, they're loved by the Father. If they sin, look, go and point out their fault. See what he says? He said, you making the connection here? He says, if that person is, is sinned or they have hurt you or offended you, they've done something that hurts God's heart and hurts your heart, go after them. And he's not like, go after them and you tell them. He's like, no, no, go after them. The same way a shepherd goes after a sheep that's lost, that desperately wants him to be restored back to a right relationship with his father, and with others, right? Go to them, point out their fault just between the two of you. This isn't a public ordeal. You're not, you're not blasting this on social media. This is respectful. I'm going to you. I'm going to you, right? And if they listen to you, now watch this. This is so powerful. If they listen to you, you have won them over. He says, if you, if you go to them, if they hurt you, offend you, if they sin, and you go to them and you point them out with a heart like a shepherd that says, man, I wanna restore this relationship. I wanna restore things back to the, to the way they were before. He says, and if they listen to you, you've won. You've won. You've won them over. You've, in some of your translations, you've won your brother. You've won your sister back. You've won them back to a right relationship with God and to a right relationship with you. You've won. And this, by the way, is where I believe step three comes in. So what's step three? You ready for it? Step one is humble yourself. Step two is remove logs. Here's step three. We have to define, or in many cases, redefine the win. We have to redefine, or define, or in many cases, redefine the win. What do I mean by that? Well, here's what I mean by that. I think oftentimes in conflict, one of the problems is we don't have a very clear definition of what the goal in conflict should be. 
What I have found, and maybe you found this to be true as well, is that many times the reason that conflict remains unresolved or unhealthy conflict resolution remains is because there is a misunderstanding of what it means to win in conflict. Right? We have misunderstood the win. We have misdefined the win. And we haven't clearly understood what is the win when I'm facing conflict. What is the win in the, what is the, win in the conflict that you're facing right now? With that person or with that relate, what is the win? See, I think for some of us, quite honestly, if we were to answer that question, we'd say, well, what it means to win is it means I win the argument. That's what it means. That's how I win. And so if I make my point and if I, if I build my case and if I come at them and I see that they've offended me and I see they've hurt me, I'm gonna come to them and I'm gonna win the argument. I think Jesus would look and say, uh-uh. You're not ready to go have this conversation with this person because you need to redefine the win. Your heart is not in the place that God would desire your heart to be. You gotta change that. He would look at the Christ follower and he'd say, "If if your definition of a win in conflict is to win the argument, he says, you need to stop and you need to redefine the win. I think for some of us, quite honestly, we might say the win, the win, the win is that I win my way. I want it to go my way. And so I'll do whatever it takes to make sure that the outcome I desire is what happens. That's, that's the win. That's the win in conflict. And Jesus would look and say, if you're a follower of Jesus, before you go and deal with the offense and the hurt of another person, if that's how you're defining the win, you're gonna need to do a heart check and you're gonna need to be very careful and you're gonna have to redefine the win. For some of us, I think we would say to, re- to the win, the win is to win my rights. You hurt me, you offended me. And now you need to pay for that. That's, I need to win my rights. And actually, actually, if you're a follower of Jesus, you know what the Bible would actually say? You should lay down your rights. That's not easy to hear. He says, but man, you gotta be willing to redefine the win. And what is the win? He defines it right here. The win is not to win the fight. It's not to win the argument. It's not to win my way. It's not to win my rights. It's to win that person. It's to win their heart. It's to win that relationship. It's to win your brother. It's to win your sister. It's to win them back to a right relationship with God and a right relationship to others. You know, I, I couldn't help but think about this whole idea of, um, this whole idea of, of uh, redefining the win. I could not help but think of probably maybe the worst fight to date that my wife and I ever got into. You guys wanna hear about that? I don't know if I have to <laughs> You're like, yes, mm, tasty morsels, let's have them. So I don't know what that was all about, but that's good. So I'll tell you about it. So I actually... Uh, my wife and I have been married for 11. And by the way, I asked her if I could share this. I was like, I was like, I was like, I was like are you cool if I share about that one fight that we had? She's like, oh, that one? I'm like, yeah, that one. And it's like historic for us. And she's like, oh, yeah, I don't care. So, so I totally got her permission. But my wife and I, we've been married for, it'll be 11 years here in March. And, um, and we're normal. We're a normal couple. So we fight just like any couple does. There's conflict that arises. And that, that happens. And we, we struggle through what healthy conflict resolution looks like, just like any person, any couple does. But I can just tell you, and I think we both would agree with this, the first couple of years of marriage, there was a different level of intensity in our fights. We have learned to fight better uh, the longer we've been in marriage. And quite honestly, I think part of the reason our fights were so much more intense in the beginning was because we had the wrong definition of winning. And so for us, whenever we fought, honestly, it was for me and for her too, it was about winning the argument. It was about winning my way. 
And so we would just go after each other and we would just break every communication rule in the book to just make our point, to build our case. And so this one fight, and this is historic for us, it actually happened, I think it was in the first year of marriage, maybe early in the second year, it actually happened on the way to a wedding that I was officiating. So, uh, so I, uh, I was a pastor when we first got married, still am, believe it or not. And, uh, and so uh, this was a wedding I was really looking forward to. So there was a person that asked me to officiate their wedding, and this wedding was out of town. It was two and a half hours, three hours away. And, and this couple was so generous, they said, hey, you know, every person in the wedding party, we're gonna put you up in a hotel for the weekend at this, at this place that we're getting married. And so I was like, oh, this will be awesome. You know, we're gonna have, I, I'm gonna do this wedding, and then my wife and I are gonna kind of have this weekend getaway at this really nice place. It's gonna be great, you know? And so we get in the car to, to go out to this wedding, uh, the morning of the wedding. And I don't know what started, I don't know how it began. I don't know what started it. It was probably her, uh, but... <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. It was probably, I don't know. So, but we got in the car and from the first minute, like we hadn't even like pulled off of our street yet. We started to fight. And I don't even remember what it was about, but it became about everything. Do you ever have one of those fights where it starts about like one thing and then it ends up being about everything? And so we, no joke, I kid you not, we fought for two and a half, three hours the whole time. And it was a blow-up fight. I mean, there was like, she was crying and I was mad and we, you know, we were breaking rules all over the place. We were like, you always and you never, which you're never supposed to say those things, right? And we were just blasting into each other. And so finally, um, we got to this place where I was gonna do the wedding. We're still fighting. So I, I check into the hotel room. We're fighting in the hotel room. And at one point, I was like, I gotta go do this wedding. And so I, 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 I said to Jess, I said to my wife, I said, I gotta go do this wedding. I was like, and I can't do it if we're like this. Like, I can't do a wedding in this condition. And she's like, fine. And I was like, fine. I said, I'm sorry. She's like, I'm sorry. I'm like, whatever. And I like walked out and I'm like, I could go do this. And so I got my, my suit on and I'm walking down. And I, and, there, and I run into the couple, the couple that I'm gonna marry. And they're like, Tony. And I'm like, hey. And they're like, how are you? And I'm like, I'm happy for you today. I didn't want to ruin their day, you know? I was like, how are you guys doing? They're like, oh, we, us? Oh, we're in love, you know? And I was like, shut up. You know, so anyway, you want to talk about convicting. I'm standing there doing this wedding. This couple's standing there, and they're in love with each other, gazing into each other's eyes. And here, I'm talking about God's picture for marriage. And I'm like, husbands are to love their wife, and sacrifice and be gentle to her. And like, meanwhile, Jess is like out in the audience. She's looking at me. She's like. <laughs> she didn't actually do that. But, uh, but I was just so convicted. And I was like, and wives should love their husbands. And, and I don't know why I got real loud there. You know, <laughs> like it was. But anyway, we kind of made it through the ceremony. And it was all fine. And Jess and I, we kind of patched it up after it was all done, but I'll just tell you, for the, and if you guys have ever been in a fight like this, for the next several days, there was just this low-grade hurt, low-grade, it took us a while to recover from that one. We had said some hurtful things to each other. Uh, we had said some things we regretted to each other. And, and you know what's interesting is, I remember thinking to myself, you know, it's so funny because I feel like I won. And I'm sure in some ways she felt like she won. We both won parts of the argument. But it was so interesting. I was like, here I won, but I didn't win anything. Like, what did I win? The cold shoulder, low-grade frustration and hurt, 
a, a week on the couch. Like, ah, oh, to the victors go the spoils, right? That's like, they didn't win anything. And it's interesting because it wasn't until, I think the second year that we were married, I think it was in the second year of marriage, where, uh, where we actually realized that we needed to redefine the win. And actually, someone said something to us, and I don't remember if it was a person or a pastor or a book that we were reading, but for whatever reason, it just caught us at just the right time, and it absolutely transformed the way we fight in our marriage. And here's what the person said. They said this. They said, in a relationship, and this isn't just true of marriage, this is true of any relationship, a friendship or whatever, if I win and you lose, we lose. We win together and we lose together. And all of a sudden, for us, it was like, huh, that's right. We need to redefine the win. Because the win, is, the win is that I wanna win the relationship. I wanna win this person's heart. And so, and so listen, I tell people all the time, in conflict, in conflict, fight to win. You fight to win in conflict. But you gotta redefine that win. Fight to win, not to win the argument, not to win your way, not to win your rights. Fight to win the relationship. Fight to win their heart. Fight to win your brother. Fight to win your sister. Fight to win that friendship, man. Fight to win your marriage. Fight to win your spouse. Fight to win. Fight to win. And so Jesus says, hey, before you go and you have that conversation and you point out that fault, you need to redefine the win in your heart. Align your heart with God's heart before you go and you have that conversation. Redefine the way. Now, here's the thing, and I understand this. I understand this. For some of you, you might be thinking, yeah, but what, what if they won't be one? What if they will not be one? And by the way, that's real. That's a real thing. Some people will not be one. And quite honestly, Jesus is about to say here in the next couple of verses, we'll talk about this. Sometimes there is very good reason to break a relationship with someone. Sometimes there is very good reason to break fellowship and to disassociate yourself. But listen, that is always, always, always a last resort. Always. And so Jesus says, man, this is what makes God happy. This is what God wants. And so when you walk into this conflict or in this conflict, man, you need to redefine the win and make sure that your heart is aligned with God's heart. To win my brother, to win my sister, to win a restored relationship, back to, back to them with a restored relationship to God and a restored relationship with me. So step three is to redefine the win. I'm asking the band to come up and as they settle in, why don't you join me and bow your heads and as we close in prayer today. Well, Father, we just wanna say thank you, God, that you um, have given us incredible clarity on a topic that's so complicated and has so many nuances as conflict resolution. But Jesus, you're wise and um, you understand the human heart better than we understand our own. And the, and the, the depths of uh, dysfunction and depravity that lie within us, God, never ceases to amaze me, but your grace far outweighs that. And God, when I think about, when I think about everything that you've called us to in conflict resolution, I think about you. And God, I'm so thankful that you didn't just tell us how to resolve conflict, but Jesus, you modeled all of this. Uh, God, we were in incredible conflict with you. Every single one of us had sinned against you. All of us have done that. And yet, when we, offend, when we offended you, when we sinned against you, you did everything, everything to win back the relationship with us. You were so committed to our good. You were so committed that you laid down your rights. You were so committed that you emptied yourself, God. You, you could have proved that you were right. You could have done that. You could have, you could have easily, um, Lord, just held on to your rights in your, in your offense because we have offended you. And yet instead, God, you humbled yourself, 
You took on the cross. You bore our sin that we might stand in a right relationship with you. And so God, I pray that that act that you have displayed, that act of grace that you have displayed to us, Lord, that that would empower us to do the same. That we would fight hard, fight hard to win, but to win our brother, to win our sister, to win a friendship, to win our marriage, to win wherever conflict might be, that, that family thing, whatever. Help us to fight to win. Thank you that you fought to win our hearts, our relationship back to you. So we just wanna ask these things and pray them in Christ's name.